The reading tonight is from Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jenny. Um, she does pretty well for being put on the spot. I didn't ask her to do that until just now. So, um, <laughs> thank you for doing that. All right. Well, have you ever had a possession that was so precious to you? that you would do anything in order to preserve it. A stuffed animal when you were young, a bicycle that meant a lot to you, or maybe something smaller like a necklace or a bracelet. It's either a family heirloom or it was given to you by a special someone. Maybe it's a family pet who you spend more money on than you do yourselves. I'm sure even to the, in this short time you have a few examples that come to mind. Both through the years and currently, we have things that we might say, this is something that I take pleasure in. It's something that I love. It's something that I would be willing to give up a lot to keep in my possession. But have we ever thought of ourselves, God's people, His church, as this kind of possession to God? One that's so precious to Him that He would go to great lengths to create, redeem, and preserve out of His incredible grace and love. I know that I've thought of this before, but as I reflected on Psalm 149, this is what I keep coming back to. It's a picture of God's people, his children, and what they do because of what he did for them, what he did for us. The commentator Matt Henry, Matthew Henry, wrote, The foregoing psalm, so Psalm 148, was a hymn of praise to the Creator. This is a hymn of praise to the Redeemer. It's a psalm of triumph. In, in the God of Israel and over the enemies of Israel. So in Psalm 148, we saw all of creation praising the Lord. In Psalm 149, now we zoom in on the pinnacle of God's creation, mankind. In this hymn of praise, we see the focus specifically on two groups of people, God's people and those opposed to God, his enemies. When we look at, the, at this victory hymn, I believe that we see two things about God's people and also gain some foresight into what is coming for their enemies. <coughs> Let's look at the text. As with all the final five psalms, it starts with hallelujah, or praise the Lord, the expression of worship. So right away, once again, we see worship as the very first action. It's, the, it's in the job description of God's people. It's what we do. We worship. We, t- we see it taking place both privately on their beds in verse 5 and publicly in the assembly of the godly in verse 1. The psalmist says, sing to the Lord a new song. Now, 
That language may sound familiar because it's used multiple times throughout the Hebrew songbook that we call the Psalms. In Psalm 33.3, we hear language that sounds very familiar to this passage as it says, Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. In Psalm 96.1, it proclaims, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. In fact, this or similar language can be found in Psalm 33, 40, 96, 98, 144, and here in 149. It can also be found outside the Psalms in Isaiah 42, Revelation 5, and 14. So when we see the phrase, new song, it should drive us to the thought of one of the major themes throughout the biblical narrative of newness. What do you think of when you think of newness? Maybe you think back to the to the objects as we talked about earlier, a new bike, a new toy, a new car, new house. But as a Christian, you should also always think of the beauty of newness of life as well. Maybe you think of that this time of year, spring, where we see plants seemingly coming back to life after they look to be dead over the winter. That's what's being portrayed here in Psalm 149. This is the first truth that we see about his people. Present victory leads to the praise of God's people. This thought of a new song goes back to Exodus 15, where Moses and Israel, God's chosen people, sing a new song to their Savior, a song of praise, as he just quite literally saved them from the certain doom by closing the Red Sea on the Egyptian army who was coming after them. It says at the, ex- at the end of Exodus 14, that Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. As a result of what they saw God do for them, they're driven to worship, and the same should be true of us. The same can be said of those of us who he has brought out of captivity of our sin and death and raised to newness of life. We should be driven to praise singing a new song as we remember the grace of God shown to us in Jesus Christ, our Deliverer. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And this should impact the entirety of our lives as we see it does God's Old Testament saints. We praise God actively because of what he has done for us when we think of our lives before Christ. For those of us who can remember a time like that, B.C., before Christ, we can do nothing than what is written here in rejoicing our King, praising his name with dance and making melodies to him with instruments. For those of you who can't remember a day when you didn't know who Jesus was and what he had done for you because you've faithfully followed him since your childhood, you praise God as well. That's a great thing. Either way, how amazing is it that he loved you, redeemed you, gave you newness of life, and has kept you and will continue to keep you from what could have been? There may be some here who have not heard this of this news or they've heard it and they deny it but for you i pray that you would humble yourself and turn to christ who is the maker who israel is glad in here 
and the king that is referred to here in verse 2. He's a covenant-making and keeping God who actively took on flesh to redeem his people. Just as he rescued the Israelites from the destruction of the Egyptians, he too will rescue you from certain destruction of sin and death if you cling to him. But how do I know this? How do we know this? Verse 4 gives us some insight into this question as it says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. The question is, what is salvation? That's one of the overarching points of the biblical narrative that's answered in Scripture. Salvation is a picture of rescue from a certain tragedy or a disaster. It's also more than just rescue in Scripture, uh, as it also pertains to being made right with God, who's the creator of all things. But what are the humble rescued from? They're rescued from the coming wrath of God that will be poured out on unrighteousness. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. When salvation is granted by God to his people, they're not only saved from something, namely the wrath of God to come, but they're saved to something. They're saved to Christ, to be a part of his eternal kingdom. That reality, it shakes us and it makes us think, how do we become one of the humble ones who is adorned with salvation? Then We see when putting this, con- this text into the context of the rest of Scripture that we cannot naturally do anything to fix this broken relationship between us and God. It was severed by our first parents, our first representatives in Adam and Eve, as they sinned in the Garden of Eden by disobeying God's command. After that fall, all of mankind has been tarnished. No one can live up to that standard that was set because no one is naturally humble. We are naturally prideful and arrogant, and we know that, and God knows that. But he had a plan from eternity past to redeem a people for himself, and that that included the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin, by the Holy Spirit, so that he would not have the sinful nature that we do, to live a perfect life, although he was tempted in every way, he never sinned, and to die a criminal death on the cross, even though he was in no way a criminal, and then to be resurrected on the third day, which we're getting ready to celebrate again next weekend, um, therefore proving his power over sin and death. So how can you be one of these children of Zion that's stated here? There's only one way. You admit that you have sinned and you look to Christ for, for forgiveness of those sins. You trust in his work and not your own. You don't try to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and fix yourself because you can't. You can't do that. You must look outside of yourself to the one who has power over sin and death. He's the one who is willing and able And as his word says, is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins. Not only is he willing and able to forgive us of those sins, but he will keep us by his spirit until our physical death, or he comes again in order to claim his people. Think of it this way. Would you 
ever let one of those things that we thought about earlier, when referring to those precious things that we have, would you ever let one of those go to waste? Would you ever let go by the wayside and be forgotten or destroyed willingly? Neither would he. Some of these things that we had when we were younger may have gotten lost or broken or destroyed and it was most likely a result of our negligence or just maybe age and wear and tear. Some of the circumstances that led to the demise of that thing that we loved uh, were within our control and others were not. That's the difference. Nothing is outside of his ultimate control. And if we, as fallen creatures, would do anything that we could to preserve that which we love, how much more will the creator of the universe do in order to preserve and perfect his people? This is the king of the universe that we're speaking of, not just a ruler of a man-made territory here on earth like Uruguay or Zimbabwe, or even a huge landmass like China or Russia. No, they have nothing on him. Even if those that rule these areas think they're mighty and powerful, we see how they stack up against our ruler in the book of Daniel, as Pastor Troy has been leading us through, or in Psalm 2. We see God sitting in heaven, laughing at their feeble attempts and claims to greatness. And he says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. A.K.A., no matter how great you think you are, I am in charge, and what I say goes. This is the king that we praise and sing to and dance before. And it gets better. This all-powerful king who rules every square inch of the entire cosmos takes pleasure in his people. If you're united with Christ and you've been made a new creation, he takes pleasure in you. Ruth, he takes pleasure in you. Jimmy, he takes pleasure in you. Troy, he takes pleasure in you. Those of you who know Christ, he takes pleasure in you. Isn't that amazing? That the one who made everything would be mindful of and take pleasure in an individual who he has redeemed and then placed them within a covenant community that he has set apart for his purposes. Therefore, when we hear these truths expressed in Psalm 149 and think about the goodness of God, we too will join in with the assembly of the godly and sing hallelujah, praise the Lord. As we get into the second half of the psalm then, verses 6 through 9, the focus changes a bit. And we see the, those who have not humbled themselves or the wicked through the eyes of the godly. But through that, we see how the promise of future victory leads to hope also for God's people. It could be a little bit confusing and dangerous if we take these verses out of context of how they were originally written. We hear wording that sounds a little bit like the psalms that are called imprecatory psalms. Uh, those which were written to call judgment down on the enemies of God and his people. This psalm is different though because it's a hymn of triumph rather than a prayer or a plea uh, to God to judge the enemies of God and his people. When we hear the language of judgment or vengeance spoken about in those imprecatory psalms or here in this one or elsewhere in the Bible, we have to be careful. We shouldn't view them as a call for personal retaliation based on what the writer's malicious desires were. Rather, their prayers or promises in this case that keep God's sovereignty in 
and justice in the forefront of our mind. Psalm 89.14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Your steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So we, we see here that some of the attributes of God's character include righteousness and justice. Many people have a hard time reconciling the thought that God is both loving and just. But if we look at his actions from the correct perspective, and we do it with a correct view of who he is, then we see these attributes are not opposed to each other, but rather flow from the reality that God is holy, holy, holy. Completely other, outside of our comprehension and even explanation at times. But these attributes are not opposed to each other, but, they, but rather they complement each other. Sadly, and I would attest incorrectly, this psalm has actually been used in history to incite violence against others in the name of Christ. The problem is that, that to interpret it this way is to miss the point of what is written and it's a gross mis- misinterpretation. For Israel as a nation, they had, a very, they had very real enemies in multiple nations or kingdoms that wanted to destroy them. And they often had to pick up the sword to defend or destroy those that sought to eliminate them first. There are times when Israel is told by God to go and conquer a people group, but instead of seeing, of seeing these as issues with God being vengeful or evil, even evil as culture often insists, we should try to see it through his eyes, from an eternal perspective, if you will. This is a loving Heavenly Father acting in judgment against the enemies of his children to preserve and keep them. This assures his people of his absolute love for them and how he will protect them from their enemies. For us, it looks a little bit different. The church no longer operates just as one nation because when Christ came, the promise and the gospel went out to both Jews and Gentiles, so those outside of the nation of Israel. Our battle is not physical, but spiritual. Ephesians 6 reminds us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Think back to that thought of the new song. We see in Revelation 14 where it speaks of the 144,000, his people, his church universal and perfected, singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Did you catch that one phrase? No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed. The grace and mercy of God is what allows you to learn this song and to be counted among his people that he takes pleasure in. In the Old Covenant, we see God justly eliminating those that sought to destroy his people. Remember that his people, it's his people that he takes pleasure in. He cares for them and has set them apart. So when evil men come against them, we see God act. God is not acting on a whim because his ego is hurt, like we might. He's acting on behalf of of his people and for his glory as he righteously upholds justice. Whereas Israel literally held a two-edged sword at times to execute judgment, we wield the sword of the Spirit, God's Word, 
that he continues to work through to bring those who were once far off near to him. The second half of this hymn is based on an expectant victory. It's eschatological in its wording and in its view, both for Israel as they hoped and expected, based on God's promises to have their wrongs righted and the the problems fixed by a coming Messiah, and also now for us, as we continue to live in a fallen world where justice is not necessarily the norm. And we look forward to the day when Christ returns and his perfect justice is realized. Revelation 21.4 says, He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is the hope that we hold on to. This is what awaits in the new heaven and the new earth. We're not called to bind kings and nobles with fetters of iron, but rather to proclaim the word of truth to our friends, family, community, and the nations. Hebrews 4.12, a verse that many of us are familiar with, says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the work that we, as God's people in the New Covenant, have been called to currently. We proclaim His truth, and through that, He continues to save sinners. He allows us, we rejoice that, that in what He has done for us, and we rejoice in the fact that He allows us to go and be merciful to others now, so that more would come to a knowledge of this King that we praise. Think back to that passage from 2 Corinthians 5. All of this is from God, it says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. As we continue to reflect on these truths, remember that the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble, with salvation. This isn't because we are naturally humble and therefore worthy of that salvation. No, the exact opposite of true. We are naturally prideful and therefore worthy of judgment. But God, being rich in mercy, took it upon himself to send Christ who gives us his righteousness in exchange for our sin, which he then defeated on the cross. As you worship him, For who he is and what he has done in Christ, it will drive you to a desire to work in proclaiming this good news to others. We pray that you would faithfully faithfully proclaim and that we would all faithfully proclaim the truth until he comes again and makes all things new. And we join with the saints in heaven, singing a new song to our Savior and King for who he is and what he has done. And to that we can say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.